Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum is on the air. Never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum is a call to arms for those American patriots who, in the tradition of our founding fathers, will stand up now to defend the Constitution and the liberties that it guarantees to each citizen, to each of us. That is our mission, to explain in a clear and concise manner the direct effect of each issue on the individual, on you personally not some anonymous being in a distant place, and to define in no uncertain terms the consequences of inaction. Let the battle begin. This is Dr. Dan. When we hear the phrase military justice, most of us recall Jack Nicholson in the movie A Few Good Men saying, You want the truth? You can't Handle the Truth, a commissioned officer who serves as an attorney in the U.S. military is called a JAG officer. Many perform routine tasks such as preparing wills, power of attorney forms, or fulfilling other legal needs of military personnel. As part of the military justice system, they may serve as prosecutors or defense attorneys in trials in which decisions can determine freedom prison time, or even the death penalty. In an ideal world, and like their civilian counterparts, JAG officers pursue the truth and seek a just verdict based on that reality. But what if the wheels of military justice were corrupted by the internal politics of the military or political elite? Pursuit of the truth then becomes a pawn in the hands of the oligarchy whose greed and lust for power demands an outcome favorable to their chosen agenda. That's when the truth becomes a fairy tale used to cover up the unwanted and inconvenient facts. Such is the case with Extortion 17, the largest single loss of life for American forces in the Afghan war and the largest single loss of life event in the history of the U.S. Naval SEALs. My guest is Don Brown, a former U.S. Navy JAG officer who is the author of Zondervan's riveting Navy Justice series, a dynamic storyline chronicling the life and adventures of JAG officer Zach Brewer. In 2003, Don began writing Treason, his first novel in the Navy Justice series. After Treason was published to rave reviews in 2005, drawing comparisons to the writing style of John Grisham, Don Brown was named co-chairman of National I Love to Write Day, an event recognized by the governors of nine states to promote writing throughout the nation and especially among the nation's schools. Hostage and Defiance, the second and third novels in the series, were published in 2006 and 2007. Black Sea Affair was released in June of 2008 
and with a bone-chilling plot and an insightfully accurate prediction of international events. It has been called the novel that predicted the Russian-Georgian War, which broke out just two months later in August of 2008. Don's fifth novel, The Malika Conspiracy, released in the summer of 2010, is an exciting geopolitical thriller set in the region surrounding the Malika Straits and shot to the top of the Amazon bestsellers list soon after its release. Paying no homage to political correctness, Don Brown's writing style is described as gripping, casting an entertaining and educational spin on a wide range of current issues, from radical Islamic infiltration of the military through the explosive issue of gays in the military to the modern-day issues of presidential politics in the early 21st century. Don Brown, welcome to Freedom Forum Radio. Dr. Dan, good afternoon to you. Thanks for having me. It's an honor to be here, and I appreciate the great work that you do with your incisive work here, and uh, I'm just very pleased and honored to be with you today. Well, Don Brown, it's a pleasure to have you. It's an honor to have you as well. You served us, uh, served our nation uh, with honor and distinction in the military. You were a JAG officer. You're now a civilian lawyer and a successful, well-read author. So let's talk first about what experiences as a JAG officer created in you the desire to write about military justice. You know, that's a great question, and thank you for it. Um, It's interesting... um, I actually left active duty in 92. My last duty station was at the Pentagon. Came in the private practice with a very busy private practice. And, um, you know, I'd been at the Pentagon, and before that I'd been with the U.S. Attorney. I was stationed, the Navy sent me to the U.S. Attorney's Office in San Diego for a while. I had some fabulous, interesting experiences uh, that I would never have gotten otherwise. Just very, very blessed professionally. Uh, to serve in the U.S. Navy and some of the experiences we had as a JAG officer. When I got out in 92, uh, I was in a very busy private practice and uh, had no real desire to write. I remained in the reserves, though, for a number of years. And uh, the thing that really, to be honest with you, um, spurred my desire to write is that when I was at the Pentagon on my last duty station, every couple of days, you know, one thing about being in the military, you get paid to stay in shape because we've got to keep the forces in shape. So I, I had a running route, a jogging route. I would run from the Pentagon. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the area, but across Memorial Bridge. Pentagon's in Arlington. Memorial Bridge is a gorgeous bridge. It uh, goes right across the Potomac River into the Lincoln Memorial. And then I would jog down the um, you know, the, constant, the National Mall around the Washington Monument and back. It's about a five-mile run. Well, on 9-11, my office in the Pentagon was destroyed. I wasn't there, of course. I've been out for a few years, but my office was destroyed. And it made me think, there by the grace of God go I. And so I began to contemplate the issue and the concern of the possibility of radical Islamic infiltration into the military. And that is what got me started. One thing led to another, and now here we are, uh, 11 books later, 10 being novels, and then my most recent as you were kind enough to mention a moment ago, the nonfiction call sign extortion 17. Well, I think it's really incredible for me to hear you say those words, uh, those words being radical Islamic uh, fundamentalism or extremism or terrorism. Uh, if you can't name the enemy, how can you possibly fight it? Well, you know, you ask a, 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 an excellent fundamental question. 
if I don't have a target, how can I shoot at the target? You don't put a target on the enemy's back. You don't know who the enemy is, how you can put a target on the enemy's back. Um, there may be a reason the enemy isn't being named. But that question uh, is full of absolute conservative common sense, and you cannot attack an enemy if you don't name and identify the enemy. It cannot be done. Well, there's where political correctness is our true enemy uh, in terms of the mechanics of how we run wars, how we run our government, how we run uh, the rules, regulations, and legislation that we're all subject to. You know, if you cannot name things, if you cannot talk about things without getting slammed by in the media or opponents, which is really what's happening today, we're really at a disadvantage. How can we conquer the things that we need to conquer if we can't talk about them and name them properly? True. And I think in the case of radical Islam that it goes above and beyond political correctness. I think it goes to an Islamocentric kowtowing by this particular administration above and beyond simple political correctness whereby we're not using you know he or she or, or whatever. I think it's, uh, it's very, very obvious that uh, this is above and beyond that. Uh, and I and one of the things that I address, of course, in my newest release, Extortion 17, uh, one of the many things that are addressed there are the foolish suicidal rules of engagement under which our military is now operating. You know, this is now uh, 10, 11 years as well. It's 2015. It's been 10 years since treason was uh, written as a novel, and the purpose of that novel was to warn against radical Islamic infiltration in the military. And now we're there almost full force. So much to the point that our rules of engagement won't even allow our military officers and enlisted men to protect themselves. We have to get fired on first before we can protect ourselves. And by that time, you have men and women that are dead. And we've seen, even recently, uh, my novel, my, my book, Portion 17, is a classic example of foolish rules of engagement. We've seen it more recently, though, in Benghazi and then in Chattanooga. And we also saw it at Fort Hood whereby the military is expected to wait until it's shot before it can do anything. And in each and every one of those tragedies, which are all inexcusable, you have had uh, Islamic killers on the, bo- on the other side. Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum will return right after this break. You know, again, talking about uh, this political correctness, you know, some of this stuff, like when you can't say he or she or you have all this kind of crazy kind of social stuff, we can laugh at it. It's really kind of innocuous uh, in the true sense. Not really, but when you're talking about people who want to kill us, who people who are chanting death to America, uh, people who have no compunction whatsoever about slicing off the heads while you're living of women, children, Christians, anyone who doesn't agree with them, I don't think that there's any room whatsoever for political correctness. That, 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 that's correct, Dr. Dan. And um, what you're describing is Sharia law, and I do a talk on this. But, uh, and, 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 you know, I was spurred to begin, <coughs> excuse me, researching this, uh, you know, when, when my, at 9-11. Again, I think if, if, it had been, if I'd have been there nine years later, earlier or nine years later, I'd have been gone. I wouldn't be here. But I've... I've researched it quite a bit and have come to the conclusion that Sharia law, that is the law of Islam, cannot coexist with the United States Constitution. It simply cannot, by the way it's written and by the way, unfortunately, in many cases it's applied. 
you know, whether it's, you know, it's, you know, Sharia law cannot exist with the First Amendment Establishment Clause because Sharia is, is aims to establish Sharia law and nothing else, says the official religion. It cannot uh, coexist with the Sixth Amendment uh, you know, right to counsel, or the Eighth Amendment prohibition against cruel and unusual punishment. And you go down the line and down the line. In my mind, it, isn't a re- it is not a religion, and it, and it is not entitled to religious protection. It is a philosophy. It is a murderous philosophy. Uh, and yet we, we treat it with a blind eye and blindly say, well, everybody's not like that. And I know that, that, that many Muslims are not like that. Most are not. But I know the philosophy itself, that if you follow it out, it cannot coexist with the Constitution. Its sources being the Quran, uh, not just the Quran, but also the, the Sunnah and the Hadith being the three sources of Sharia law are absolutely an anathema to the Constitution. And we as officers are sworn to uphold the Constitution. Our our, our president, our members of the, of, the, of the federal branch of the government, uh, or their state branches are all taking oath to uphold the Constitution. You cannot uphold the Constitution if there is within the nation of cancerous philosophy such as Sharia law that clearly is set to destroy the Constitution as we know it. So it's an anathema. It cannot, one cannot exist with the other. You it know, can't happen. You know, if you look at the history of Islam, and I think this is very, very instructive. I'm a student of history, and I think you can learn an awful lot by studying the history of any subject you want to look at. So look at the history of Islam. It has been spread by the, on the point of a sword from the very beginning. It is not a religion of peace. It is a religion of violence. And you know that according to Sharia law, if you are not a Muslim, you have basically, according to them, three choices. You can either convert to Islam, you can be a slave, and that's called dimitude, or you will be put to death. Those are the three choices that you're actually given. Now, they don't want you to know that. When you read an English version translation of the Quran, it's not in there. But people who know how to read the original stuff, they can uh, tell you uh, for sure that that's exactly what is meant and that's exactly what they intend. Well, you're correct, Dr. Dan. And as Jefferson said, the price of freedom is eternal vigilance. And as Romans said, give them, uh, give them bread and give them circus that you can control their lives. And unfortunately, um, the, the masses in the United States don't have a clue. And that's one of the reasons I appreciate the work that you're doing. And, uh, and I'm so grateful that you're here and others like you are continuing to stand out and educate and warn. And uh, let's just hope and pray that people listen to the prophets. Well, you know, the, the thing is that you have also had a major role in spreading the truth and spreading the word. And I think that's what we really have to do, Think things that you are doing by writing novels, by writing books, because you have that firsthand experience. You understand why you have to do what you've done. And you look at the books you've written, they are maybe fiction, but I know that you put in those books the truth so that by reading the fiction and enjoying the fiction, you're also getting the information you need to make informed decisions about what is going wrong in the world today and what we need to do to fix it. You know, uh, thank you for those comments. Uh, I do a talk, and I've, I've given this talk uh, to writers' conferences before and other, in other venues, some school conferences. It's entitled Fiction as a Weapon in the Culture War. And, and I was one of these nonfiction snobs for many years, you know, I was 
fiction, I'm not going to touch it. But but I've come to the conclusion, as I said a moment ago, in quoting the Romans, give them bread and give them circus today. The bread is a welfare state, and the circus is the garbage Hollywood is putting out. But it, it's amazing how powerful story can be uh, to influence the culture, both for good and evil. And in the talk that I give, I basically cite two or three novels that have uh, that works of fiction that have shaken the culture. I typically will cite Uncle Tom's Cabin, uh, which next to the Bible itself was the largest seller of any book in the 19th century in the world. Lincoln was was uh, rumored to have said to Harriet Beecher Stowe when he met her in November of 1862 that it's good to finally meet the little lady that started this big war. You know, Lincoln used uh, abolition as uh, you know as a rallying point midway through the war, although he was not an abolitionist to begin with. But but that, that book. The point of the matter is being a work of fiction had a tremendous impact. Then I also cite the works of Solzhenitsyn. That's a little more contemporary to most of us. Unfortunately, many Americans don't know who he is. He wrote the novel One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich. Fifty years later, the BBC called it the novel that shook the Soviet Union. But that novel, when it was released for a very brief period of time, you know, Solzhenitsyn was going after Stalin. Stalin and, and Khrushchev basically hated each other, even though they were both communists. When Khrushchev became general secretary, he knew about this book, let it out, got in the Soviet Union, and lit the country on fire. And so the point is that fiction can, and story, can affect the culture. And we don't realize, we, we wonder why the country is the way it is. Why is the country voting a certain way? Why all of a sudden have, has our culture taken on this? what it's taken on. Well, you go back 50 years and you see the storylines that have been bombarded into the, into the culture through sources of fiction, through Hollywood, whether it's television, whether it's the big screen, whether it's novel, etc., uh, and the way of thinking changes. So this is one of the things that was driving me. Um, I, I learned uh, quite some time ago, I can learn more about the, Gatt- the Battle of Gettysburg by reading Killer Angels, a great work of historical fiction, than I can reading a, uh, you know, a straight-up historical treatise. So that's one of the things that drives me in terms of trying to use fiction as a way to influence the culture and also to warn, because I think, you know, when you have good story, you can remember things better. You can interweave truth and story. Fiction versus nonfiction is not truth versus versus falsity by any means. But so that's sort of the philosophy that drives me in writing. Well, that's a great philosophy because you have cited some of the mo- one of the most important principles that we are suffering from is that over the course of the past hundred years, the progressive era in this country, the people of the country have been fed lies cloaked in sheep's clothing. Uh, we have been fed lies that have been gu- guised as the truth or guised as good, and that has been done th- largely through the media. The more the media has been able to have access to people, first, of course, it was in the movies, but then now with the computer and the Internet, there's almost an unlimited way that, that young people especially can be co-opted into believing things that just, frankly, are not even true. That's absolutely correct. And if you know, they say if you, who was it that said if you if you tell a lie enough times, it will begin to be sink in as the truth. And uh, unfortunately, that's where we are. And we're in the situation where the prophet said, "Woe to them who call evil good and good evil." And now, the cult in the culture and in the and the political apparatus in the media. Uh, you know, we have we blade, we're blading in a situation where we're calling evil good and good evil, and you know, and I'm I'm a military guy, of course, and I, and I see the military, and my passion, of course, is is for guys that have lost their lives, just like these thirty Americans, as you mentioned, who, by the way, passed away four years ago yesterday, or August sixth, two 
2011, um, and their their lives have been largely forgotten. And but they are the victims of political correctness, not just political correctness, but an Islamocentric political correctness, whereby the rules of engagement were set that guaranteed their death. And uh, again, what are those who call good, e- good evil and evil good? And that's where we are. And that concludes another episode of Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum. Join the battle on our website, www.drdansfreedomforum.com. The right to own private property that cannot be arbitrarily confiscated by the government is the moral right and constitutional basis for individual freedom. They call them muddy waters. And people I just love to hear that old man sing. Yeah, when I play the hoochie-coochie man I get joy in everything Everything, everything Everything gonna be alright this morning <laughs>